Hello friends, it's your boy again, Jamil here, and it's good to be back. I took a bit of a podcast vacation, I realize I did this about six episodes in, so you know, I don't know if I'm built for the world of content creation. I mean, I'm kind of still not ready to be back here, to be honest, but hey, I mustered up the energy. And I'm going to bring you what is easily the episode that has the most possibility for pretentiousness. So I hope y'all been hanging in there. And uh, I don't know, I don't really have any positive messages here. You know, like, fuck, fuck the stupid world right now. But the good news is that I have been listening to a lot of music. So that hasn't stopped. I think I just felt the need to take uh, an intentional break from translating my thoughts into podcast format while listening to the music. But I want to thank everyone out there. There's more listeners to this thing than I would have imagined. Um, I want to give a special shout out to listener Declan um, from Scotland who wrote me a very sweet message about the show and how it's helping him and his aunt during a, a tough time right now and from being uh, disconnected to music for a long time. So, you know, Declan, you're, you're the real MVP, and uh, thanks for sharing all that with me. And I think knowing that a, a middle-aged auntie out there is listening to me talk shit about prog rock uh, really makes this whole thing worthwhile. But let's get into this episode. We are on episode seven. This one is called Ecstatic Music, uh, and, and this is a two-part episode, so this one's Ecstatic Music, The Teachers. So th- this will be part one of two episodes, and this one is going to be going down what is probably the vaguest rabbit hole so far. I think maybe you thought we were going to get into really, really super specific genres here, but um, I don't know. I just haven't I haven't felt uh, the need to be doing that. I think I'll probably simplify as things get <laughs> a little bit, uh, get further into some of these episodes. But ecstatic music, that's what we're getting into here. We're going to attempt to define it um, in a bit, but while this episode is going to be focusing on artists who kind of, you know, employ ecstatic elements into their music, or maybe whose entire musical purpose is to create ecstatic states of experiencing the music, you know, maybe both like a live and a recorded context, the next episode will be diving into the artists over the past, you know, several years who kind of carried these tactics over into their own musical projects. So while it's not a direct teacher and student relationship as the title might imply, I mean, there's just kind of no way to qualify that. You know, take this as more of a a chronology versus like a direct influence kind of thing. I mean, I definitely hear some passing down and reaching back by both generations of artists, but you know, that's really on you all to decipher for yourselves. I mean, that's kind of the fun in talking about this stuff. I mean, you can declare me to be entirely full of shit. That's totally fine. But, uh, you know, as long as you're being turned on to stuff that you vibe with, and I don't know, I think my work here is pretty much done. That's that's the bar that I'm I'm setting for myself. That's the way I'm going to stay sane doing all this. But uh, before you talk about the music, or before I talk about it, you know, before anyone talks about the music, you got to listen to it. And, and with that, I think, comes some deep listening. And I think that's something you got to... I'm constantly trying to hone it, you know? Like, it's a skill. I'm trying to sharpen it. Um, you know, and maybe it's like a muscle for you to develop. And uh, it's, it's, it's your muscle alone. I mean, there's no way to, like, brag about this kind of thing or show it off. You know, only you're going to know where you're at with it. And I, I think that's probably the beauty of it. 
you know, it ne by necessity will filter out like any of the superficial shit that's all around us, especially the stuff that gets swept into music all the time. I mean, it's kind of like self-flagellation or something. It's it's you know nothing to brag about, but you know, damn, it feels it feels really good. So. Ecstatic music is, again, like, it's going to be difficult for me to define this, so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not going to spend much time on it. Um, I'm just going to blurt out some, some thoughts, some notes, and I think just by listening to these tracks, which are really all over the place, it's going to kind of allow you to stitch together what they have in common. But, you know, I think the goal of the music in much of this is to create and stimulate these ecstatic states, maybe uh, in the artist's who are performing the music and maybe in other cases it's it's you know uh just as important to create this state in the listener maybe it's maybe it's for both the performer and the listener and um you know i think that's particularly true if it's part of like a ritual that is steeped in something that's very human and what is going to become apparent with these tracks is that it's really about locking you in. I mean, that's that's the name of the game here. It's locking you in. It's taking you by the hand, you know, sometimes forcefully and other times with care. It's transfixing your attention to a singular place. It's about, um, you know, like relinquishing and tuning out the ego. And it's also in some cases about the artist kind of just letting it all out, you know, exercising something, purging energy, uh, maybe transferring energy. I mean, it can be improvised or it can be really composed. I mean, it can be restrained and it can be purging and everything in between. I mean, this is music that has other things in mind, bigger things in mind than like you and I sitting on our couch and listening to it on headphones and kind of like, you know, picking it apart or critically analyzing it or tweeting it about it like we never even come into the equation as distant listeners here so you know ecstatic music is interested in being an intoxicant to like the sobriety of you know life like the drudgery of life um you know to interconnect all who who can just let themselves go you know, and you saw rock, you saw like rock and roll bands employing this. You saw avant-garde musicians doing this. You saw like new age and ambient and jazz artists doing this. And you saw people living outside the Western world who were, you know, passed down these musical traditions generationally and who use this music to serve, you know, maybe a spiritual purpose or a ritual or just like a communal kind of like thing. So this music doesn't have to feature global like kind of sounds and scales to be ecstatic. I mean, like minimalist composers like Steve Reich and Philip Glass and Terry Riley, you know, all people that I, I you know I don't really listen to a lot to, but I'm you know surface level familiar with. I know that they like reveled in this kind of stuff with many of their compositions, but for this episode, I decided to leave them out of this framework because I'm more interested in the physicality of the performance and knowing that this music could be spontaneous and sure like a couple of these selections are I'm gonna assume composed or it's like pretty sure they're composed so it's not about drawing the line there either um, but with the composed pieces you're gonna hear I think what sets them apart is that the complexity of the writing and performance is, you know, such that they end up intentionally hitting these like ecstatic frequencies. Like there's some kind of a uh, wizard's code to unlocking it if you just know how to put the thing together. 
I mean, composition is incredible, you know? Like, some of my favorite music is composed. And as visceral as improvised music uh, can be when it's played, you know, we're interested in the through line here. So um, I, I, I didn't include stuff like Philip Glass's Music for 12 Parts or Drumming by Steve Reich. Um, you know, if I did, I'd feel more compelled to dive into, like, more modern-day minimalists. And... I don't know. In my opinion, that's its own rabbit hole, which intersects with this stuff, no doubt. But we're after people banging on things, strumming the shit out of things, singing and chanting in unison. I mean, instruments being played and layered in rhythmic and dynamic ways like syncopation. Like, that's what we're after here. And uh, I think it's music that can make the most timid person like kind of jump up in like some kind of hypnotized glee and like freak out. So, you know, we're after that physicality with this one. We're not so much looking for transcendence, although that, that is definitely part of this as well. But we're, we're, in, we're looking for like channeling group energies through these deliberate rhythms and group playing. You know, music that eliminates the gap between music and listener. I mean, as cl <laughs> cliche a thing as that is. And music that invites the listener to like become the music, like not feel any really separation from it. So that's that's my best attempt at describing what we're getting into here. Um, I know that's a lot of meandering bullshit. So, um, you know, let's get into this music that I'm really coming up short in describing. Okay, we're kicking things off with Sunny Sharak. The track is called Black Woman and it's off the album black woman so this is an album of uh self-described ecstatic music this was recorded in 1969 by free jazz guitarist sonny Sharak, and it it definitely is an album that features very prominently his wife linda Sharak, and um, a lot of her intense uh vocalizations and singing so it's been written that Linda's voice in some ways kind of like emulates a jazz horn on this recording. So, you know, this is ecstatic music in the sense that it's a it's a total catharsis. It's a release of emotion. It's a bubbling, bubbling up of expression from all the musicians. I mean, they're all matching each other as they coalesce together in, in some kind of, you know, incantation. So it, uh, I, I love this track. I think it's very harrowing. I think it's uh, really glorious at the same time. And there's not much to say about it other than it's something that I think probably turned jazz on its head. Uh, maybe not at the time, but uh, perhaps afterwards. But, you know, maybe at the time, too. I, I'm not a historian in any sense of the word. Um, but this is probably the kind of music that most people, you know, call like noise or racket. Um, but that might just be that, you know, they're hearing the music as an assault and they're not hearing the music as uh, an outpouring that happened to be recorded.
This next one is by the band Popol Vuh, and the track is called uh, Agape, Agape, Love, Love. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. And um, that is also the name of the album, and this, this record comes from 1983. So this is, um, you know, almost one of those situations, the, the, the triumvirate, where it's the band name is the same as the album name is the same as the song name. And there's not many examples of this in rock and roll and music history. And for some reason, metal bands are the ones who really like this the most. I mean, I could think of three examples right off the top of my head. And they're all metal bands. You got Black Sabbath, you got Iron Maiden, and you have Angel Witch. And uh, it's, you know, we're seven episodes in now. I probably need to divulge and and, uh, come correct with you all and tell you that I am a huge metalhead. And uh, that is not a secret. Um, and there will be metal episodes in the future. I, you can, I guarantee you this. This thing might turn into a, a metal-only podcast. We'll just see what happens. That's that's the strength of metal people. Okay, let's get... The, <laughs> we went on a huge tangent there. We need to get back on track here. Um, so Popol Vuh. This band kind of started off being forefathers to like German electronic music and Krautrock. Um, you know, they soundtracked an extremely classic era of Werner Herzog films in the 70s. But, you know, eventually they, they wound up getting very mystical and drawing in influences from ancient and central uh, and uh, Central America. Yeah. And as well as Southeast Asia and, and I would say Africa on, on, on some albums, too. But, uh, you know, this track in particular is an example of a band from a time and a place. You know, we're talking about the the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s in Germany, who you would never guess is making music like out of that time and place. I mean, their music and this song in particular is, uh, you know, very timeless. It's boundless. It's borderless. It's it's just deeply human and transcendent. And um, this band, Popovu, get called predecessors to world music. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a compliment or... Uh, um, we're talking shit, um, but I think they're an example of what the term might have been referring to before it became like, you know, commercially viable. You know, those CDs that you would see in a rack at the cash register at like a coffee shop. But anyway, this this band was just the best at writing and performing these very simple, very powerful mantras and, and constructing entire songs from them. I mean, no instrument is particularly important. No voice is particularly important here. It's just like this communal music that speaks directly to our species. And it's ecstatic in the sense that it's, you know, foundational, it's primitive, and it's ritualistic without sounding corny. I mean, I think some people will find this to be incredibly corny, but I don't know. I just, I just, I'm a sucker for this stuff when it's executed this convincingly.
next one is uh, by Troop Majidi, and the track is called Khudrini, and it was released March 9th, 2015. And it was recorded by uh, one Hisham Mayet in 2005. And it comes off a compilation album titled Ecstatic Music of the Jama Al Finne. Um, and it was released by a great label called Sublime Frequencies, um, which is uh, uh, tangential to, or actually totally just directly managed by, I think, uh, at least one of the Sun City Girl guys. Um, so. Uh, I'm going to read off the, the one sheet for this because it's going to put this into context. So for centuries, the Jama al-Finna, uh, which translates to rendezvous of the dead, has remained the stage for one of the most spectacular social forums on the planet. And uh, th this compilation basically features three prominent um, what's called night market bands. You know, these are bands that perform at night once the tourists have left the markets and medinas in morocco and these musicians get together to play for you know the the community and the inhabitants of the markets and and all the people from the city um so i'm gonna go back to the the um the one sheet for this so instruments are powered by car batteries and blown out through megaphone speakers these recordings represent a rare opportunity to hear this music at such close proximity taking in all the power and passion of the performances the raw fidelity captures an unflinching immersion of what is simply some of the greatest street music on earth. So this this track in particular, I, I love the tone of the guitar in this. I mean, it's half the reason I chose it. But it's also just a, in the compilation, um, it's, it's one of the best candidates I had for qualifying street music as ecstatic music because of just sort of how ramshackle and impromptu it can be. Plus the quality that these, you know, the the quality that these are just regular people who could be your dad or your aunt or your cousin like jamming in the group like it, it's music that is entirely equalizing it's in reverence of those musicians who made it big in your in your country or your community and still resonate with the people but it's it's featuring people who often have just as good a chops as the people who made it out but it's music for the neighborhood to all get together and witness and participate in and and feel lucky to call some place home
Next up is another personal favorite. This is Alice Coltrane, and the track is called Hare Krishna. And this track is from Alice's Universal Consciousness album. So this was originally released on Impulse Records, huge legendary jazz label, uh, in 1971. And this is her sixth album, and it's definitely the part of her career where she was about to migrate from like this cosmic spiritual jazz with a lot of harp playing to uh, uh, what's considered her more devotional artistic period. And that period of music correlates to Alice uh, spending time in India and then coming back to the States and starting an ashram in uh, California. And her music changed a lot during this time and it, and it lost a lot of what we come to recognize as like you know jazz music in in that later stuff and i'm a big fan of that of this later era of alice's music and a lot of that output is probably like the better pick if we're interested in ecstatic music because so much of it is based on repetitive mantras and devotional group singing but there's something about this song on you know earlier in her career before she made that switch that I think that's it's perfectly em emblematic of uh, ecstatic music. It's just done in a much slower pace with a like a kind of a sluggish tempo. And it's not restraint we're talking about here. I mean, the musicians are really like letting loose, especially Alice with her organ soloing is just crazy. But it's as if the whole band is taking a quiet like eight minute solo while, you know, the, the strings and the drone and provide this like constant backbone that pushes the songs through or the song through these movements and it's just a great example of a piece that was written to be performed live i mean and you really feel it when the instruments all push hard together and form these like very intense crests and you know so this is like tranquil ecstatic music that is totally free and it's not relying on steady or faster rhythms to kind of transfix the listener uh, the approach is restrained but the playing is anything but
This next one is from Glenn Branca, and the track is called Light Field, two words. So this is from the album The Ascension, which was released in 1981 and scored for four guitars, bass, and drums. So I think this is ecstatic music that is you know, kind of designed as a weapon. I mean, I've seen reviews calling this music rapturous, and I think that's 100% the right term to use here. So a little bit about Glenn Branca. He was a New York City avant-garde guy who basically put together this kind of like guitar army, which featured um, Lee Ronaldo um, before he joined up with Sonic Youth. And while this music is absolutely composed and very structured, um, which, you know, like I said before, some some might say defies the typically improvised nature of a lot of ecstatic music. I think that listening to this track does something to, you know, really slice through that notion. The guitarists are composed in such a way that you get these like cascading lines and riffs that fall on top of each other in ways that like it really catches your ear and you end up like picking up the patterns eventually and expecting the placement of the riffs. But then more riffs keep piling on in different ways and it becomes something you just you get completely lost in. And the sense of building up your anticipation and droning on it till you're like fully syncopated with it. But then, you know, Glenn will just clear it all away. Like like with this track, just just when you're kind of getting the hang of everything, it all breaks down in lieu of like this bridge of like uh, guitar harmonics where, you know, things gradually build back up to. You know, the familiar riff that and the stacking that was kind of like getting you so pumped up before. But I don't know. It's just like mastery in, in composing and dynamics. And it's music that totally cancels out the outside world for the duration of the song. And the other thing is just how influential this became to like, you know, noise rock and post-punk and indie bands. Like even to this day. I mean, that whole like, you know, guitar player wailing on like a harmonic chord thing that bands do, like when they really want to sound cacophonous, like a lot of that has its roots with what Glenn Branca um, was doing, especially on the Ascension. So I think this is a, a very good candidate for ecstatic music in the avant-garde that got really like sucked into like rock music, especially like really wild and dissonant and, and, you know, like cacophonous style of like rock music.
Next up, we have the Gamelan of the Walking Warriors, and the track is called At the House of the Deceased. So this was released via the great, absolutely great Acuphone label in 2017, but it's actually taken from a, a recording from 2011. So this recording isn't new, and you might be wondering why it's on the, the teacher's part of this uh, two-parter. Um, but I'm using this selection to make a case for um, gamelan music from, you know, from Bali, Indonesia, to be like a form of ecstatic ritual music that is really powerful in its own right, but also, you know, towards the grand scheme of experimental music. And while this may have been performed and recorded, you know, in recent times, like just, you know, nine years ago, it is a ritual music that is really old. I mean, in fact, it, it predates like Hindu or Buddhist like culture. So it's very much considered an indigenous art. And uh, this is from uh, an, a record called The Gamelan of the Walking Warriors. And um, the, it's the Gamelan uh, Bella, Bella Janjur and the music of the Nagabian funerary ritual in Bali. So the context here is that it's a funeral ceremony in Bali, Indonesia. And there's gongs, there's cymbals, there's drums, and, and they kind of give rhythm to, uh, you know, this mortuary procession. And I, I really urge everyone uh, to eventually, or before you listen to this track, to watch a video of Kamlan being performed live, especially by a Balinese ensemble, because it just... When you listen to this, if you have no context for it, it just makes a lot more sense when you see the physicality of how this music is performed, you know, the movements, the way lines of percussionists drop in and out of playing, the precision of group playing in unison. You know, how, how something that initially sounds chaotic and unpredictable can really cohere together. It's just, it's all so elaborate and devotional and um, I think the epitome of ecstatic music that is not improvised and serving a purpose outside of music as entertainment. I mean, this is truly like what group playing like uh, totally constitutes. It's just just amazing stuff. So definitely watch watch a video of a live Balinese gamelan uh, ensemble. And um, hopefully you get into the ra uh, separate diverging rabbit hole of just gamelan music.
Okay, next up is a band I'm sure everyone will recognize. We got our Normie band in for this one, The Velvet Underground. And the song is European Sun. And this is the last track on their debut from 1967, The Velvet Underground and Nico. You know, the Andy Warhol Banana album. I bought this album uh, on a whim when I was like very young, 17 years old-ish. And I was really into ska at the time. So uh, I think I spun this album one time and never listened to it again. But, or I'm sorry, I, I you know, I li- did listen to it much, a, a bit later on in life and, and, and came to really like it and appreciate it. And, um, you know, where are those ska records now? Nowhere to be seen. So... I wanted to feature Sister Ray here. That's the choice. That's the jam. That's the track. That's the one that's been bootlegged, like live bootlegs, like, (laughs) you know, hundreds of them exist and people just go after this one track. But I think the song does a similar trick and it's also, you know, uh, a little shorter. So to me, this is ecstatic music in the context of American rock and roll. It's very ham-fisted. It's very steeped in like these early rock tropes, you know, like Chuck Berry kind of thing. But it's just so manic and loose. I mean, this might be the foundation for a lot of shit that people love, especially music nerds, you know, stuff like Spaceman 3 and My Bloody Valentine and I'm sure a lot of other kind of like noisy rock stuff. But this track is very improvised it has feedback and distortion like cutting in and out of it which just adds to the chaos and i like this track a lot because it's just a cool way of confronting like early american rock audiences with this twisted application of rock and roll i mean it's totally in the sphere of a band like kind of melting down live and indulging in this noise that you know presumably the audience is going to hate especially when they know you're the velvet underground And, um, you know, maybe it's just noise for noise's sake, but I don't know. It's also, in my opinion, it's ecstatic and uh, and cathartic. It's like an example of this getting as close to like pop culture as you can possibly get. Your European son, you spit on those under 21. But now your blue cars are gone, you better sit so long. Hey, hey, bye, bye, bye. You made your wallpapers green, you want to make love to the sea. Your European son is gone, you better sit so long, your clouds treat you goodbye.
right, next we have the Master Musicians of Jajuka, and the song is called El, Med- El Medahi. And this was originally released in 1992 off the album Apocalypse Across the Sky. What a fucking album title. I mean, you don't really even need to know the kind of music. You see an album title like that, and you, you just go. You go inside. So this was recorded at Jajuka in the foothills of the Reef Mountains of Morocco on November 8th, 9th, and 10th of 1991. And, you know, like Gamelan, while this, you know, may have been recorded in the last 30 years, it's very much part of an old tradition. I mean, this music is rooted in Sufi mysticism and a kind of paganism. And uh, I think I read, I read here that it's the... The cult of the goat god, Bujalud. Um, according to a myth, many centuries ago, Bujalud appeared to a shepherd called Attar, an ancestor of today's ensemble leader, uh, Bashir Attar. Until today, every year at the end of Ramadan, a fire in honor of the goat god is ignited. This pagan root aside, the music performed is several hours the music is performed in several several hour-long rituals on traditional instruments, um, and uh, it reveals hypnotic, trance-inducing qualities and is considered to have magical and healing properties. So uh, that gives you a little bit of background into the Master Musicians of Jujuka. It's basically a collective of musicians who feature a ton of members, and they play uh, what's called Jbala, uh, 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 Sufi trance. And the term Jbala means mountain in Arabic. Um, but specifically, we're talking about, you know, the northwest mountain region of Morocco. And they basically are, uh, you know, a, a modern-ish collective in a musical tradition that is centuries old. And in the 50s and the 60s, a lot of, like, these cool rock and roll guys and beat writers um, became really fascinated by this group in particular. Um, as Mor- especially as Morocco became more of, like, a popular counterculture place for escape for you know a lot of westerners um, i'm sure hash had uh, something to do with it and um m- you know most of the players in the master musicians of jajuka play an instrument called the geta which is a a double reeded horn with a series of holes and it's made of apricot wood um from a very specific town in northern morocco but you also have percussionists playing, you know, ceramic and skin drums. And, and much of the, the master's music is a very nasally, like swarming kind of sound with it's that that's really it's it's dominated by the the, the playing of the geta because you'll have like, you know, several people playing this instrument all at the same time. So that's where you get the swarming kind of sound. And it kind of, the sound rides on these rhythms. And it's it's very engulfing music that is clearly clearly meant for rituals and forcing these trance states or just creating an atmosphere where you fall into them. And I do, I do find it kind of hard to take on a Master Musicians of Jujuka record on its own sometimes. But this, this record and this track in particular, it really does the trick in showcasing the, the swarming trance sound that they create, which is, I've been telling you, it's, it's really unlike anything else out there and pairing it with more you know, dynamic instruments. I mean, it's an excellent recording and starting place for this group and the very ancient music that they are still summoning and preserving like to this day.
All right, we are on to our final track. This one is from Midori Takada, and the track is called Catastrophe. And this track is from Midori Takada's first solo album titled Through the Looking Glass, and it was originally released in 1983. So Midori is a Japanese composer, a multi-percussionist, and theater artist. And she performs uh, solo on marimba and, and a lot of other percussion instruments. And this is definitely minimalist music that has a lot of influence from, from different percussion styles across the world, but especially East Asia and definitely Africa. And I think that a lot of the more avant-garde kind of conceptual new agey stuff that came out in the 70s and the 80s, it, it can fit into the world of ecstatic music because of how structureless it can be sometimes, but this piece is really cool because it grabs you right from the beginning and pulls you into what seems like, I don't know, uh, like a really weird safari or something like that. I mean, the percussion in this song, uh, it just leads you through these movements like throughout this track. I mean, it's it's kind of theatrical and immersive and it, and it builds towards this really intense drumming, these really intense polyrhythms. And it's just, the composition is incredible. I mean, it's like hypnotizing and it's difficult to tell like how composed this actually is. It may be in part composed, it may be in part uh, impromptu or improvised, but you come away from the track as if it was uh, a sculpture of sound. Like that's what, I, that's what I feel this song is. It's like a sculpture. It's very epic. It's very transfixing, very profound. And it's like ecstatic in, in, in every possible way. And uh, this track is, is over 15 minutes long, so I'm going to leave the track with you. Um, you know, if, if you've learned anything in this podcast so far, you know that the music is more important than anything else. I mean, if you're, you know, skipping through my tirades and, and, and my, my uh, uh, futile attempts to describe this shit, that's totally fine as long as you're getting, getting the music in. So we're going to end on this one. Uh, we're going to come back in part two, uh, Sonic Cloth episode eight, where we're going to dive into the students. And like I said before, it's not necessarily a direct through line like, uh, you know, all these folks that I'm showing here, are like influencing everyone I'm going to show you. It's just this is like, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be really showcasing a lot of the ecstatic music that is transcending genre and coming out in the last, you know, let's say 10 years or so. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's similar to this episode in that we're, we're still going for these trance-inducing, you know, improvised and, and composed pieces of music, but, you know, genre is completely irrelevant here. It can, it can really come from any place. So um, I'll leave you with the Catastrophe by Midori Takada. Um, that is what we're in now, a catastrophe. So, um, you know, what better way to end things than to uh, uh, give you this epic 15-minute uh, Japanese minimalist track that uh, will, I'm sure will blow your mind. All right, everyone. Peace out. See you next time. Get Hop on uh, Instagram to grab the track list. Uh, I'm going to just search the Sonic Cloth podcast and um, rate and review if you're feeling that. We'll see you next time. Peace.